This morning, uh, in honor of Family Sunday, I thought I would recruit one of our uh, cool kids here at West Hills uh, to help me introduce this week's topic. So, Amelia, would you come on up? And um, if you guys want to give her a hand, she's on her way up. Spe- speaking of being bold and being willing to, and you can take your mask off if you prefer. It's up, it's up to you. Um, to quickly kind of give you, remind everybody of our context for this morning. So uh, we are halfway through our Church Under Fire series as a church right now, sermon series. We're uh, talking about the seven greatest threats facing the 21st century American church today. Last week, uh, sorry, this week, we're discussing uh, threat number four, which is the threat of intellectualism. Amelia, do you know what intellectualism means? Uh huh. Um, if you don't know, that's okay. You're in good company because probably half the adults here don't know. So, your job, we're gonna we're gonna help them understand what intellectualism is this morning, okay? By demonstrating it, I've got a little quiz for you, and I've already prepared Amelia with the questions because I wouldn't want to pull her up on stage and then embarrass her by not knowing. So, three questions. Ready? Question number one. Do you know George Washington? Nah, sort of. Okay. Tell me about George Washington. He's dead. He's dead? Uh-huh. Um, he wears wigs. Wore wigs. He's bald in Hamilton. Hamilton, okay. Uh, he's a president. Well, he was the first president. Very good. Okay, good. So you do. You, you, you know about George Washington. Number two, do you know Taylor Keene? He's my dad. Okay, that's your dad. Good. So I'm, so I'm glad you know him. Tell me else. Tell me about Taylor. Uh, he has black hair, mm-hmm. or as he would say, very dark brown. Mm-hmm. Um, he likes to play Animal Crossing. Okay. Um, he's a counselor. Uh-huh. What he about his heart? What's in here? Uh, he's kind and caring and loving. Okay, good. You got good, good reviews. That's good. Um... <laughs> Last question. Ready? Mm-hmm. Do you know Jesus? Yes. All right. My follow-up question here, I'm going to ask you not to actually answer because it's a question for all of us this morning. And it's the one that we need to sit with in thinking about this threat of intellectualism. Is the way that, you know, is the way that we know Jesus more like the way we know George Washington or the way that that you know your dad. Okay? Can you all give her a hand again for helping us? Thank you, Amelia. You can grab a seat. Speaking of quizzes, we're going to see this morning in Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 27, that we are all going to stand before the Lord in heaven one day, and we're going to take a quiz. The thing that's so unsettling and perhaps even frightening about Heaven's Quiz, for those of us like myself, like Amelia, like many of you, those of us who are raised in the church, good Christian kids from good Christian homes, is that you can know all the right Sunday school answers, you can have all the right Bible verses memorized, you can even profess faith in all the right beliefs. You can even be baptized on the basis of that profession of faith and still fail heaven's test and spend eternity in hell instead. Intellectualism is defined as excessive emphasis on intellectual matters 
especially with a lack of proper consideration for emotions. So kids, your intellect is your mind. Or perhaps even better in philosophy, the doctrine that knowledge is wholly or chiefly derived from pure reason. It is the idea that knowing is simply a head thing. See, when the Bible refers to knowing, it often has far more in mind than our heads. In Amos, in Amos 3.2, God declares to his people Israel, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. God was not ignorant of the Egyptians, the Babylonians, the Philistines. God is saying, I don't have a relationship with those people like I do with you. Jesus says in John 10, 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them. They follow me. Jesus is aware of every single person, every thought, feeling, action of every person who's ever walked the planet. The Bible says that not a bird falls to the ground without Jesus knowing about it, being aware of it, but he only knows, truly, intimately knows his own sheep. Genesis 4.1 says that Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain. Kids, I'm going to let your parents explain that one to you on the car ride home today. But suffice it to say that when the Bible speaks of knowing, it's talking about intimacy. It's talking about being deeply connected on a very personal level. And my fear as a pastor is that if we are not careful as a church and as parents, we can very easily raise and send out kids whose heads are filled with knowledge about Jesus and whose hearts are empty of Jesus. It is easy to raise kids who know Jesus like they know George Washington. It is very difficult, dare I say impossible, to raise a child to know Jesus like they know us as their parent or their best friend. Because that kind of knowledge, heart knowledge, can only come from God himself, the Bible says. But this isn't just a parenting concern. There are entire churches, evangelical, Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches today in this country and all around the world that are filled with people who think they are Christians bound for heaven because they know Jesus like they know George Washington and they are in for a rude and terrifying awakening when they finally stand before the judgment throne and hear, depart from me, I never knew you. Statistically speaking, in all likelihood, that describes some of you here this morning. Some of you here have been confusing intellectualism with genuine, born-again, regenerate faith in Jesus Christ. You have the appearance of godliness, 2 Timothy 3.5, but none of its power. You affirm all the right doctrines, and you're fluent in churchianity, but you know nothing of true, transformative Christianity. You know all about Jesus, but you don't know Jesus at all. And he doesn't know you. And if some of you don't wake up this morning, you are in serious jeopardy of spending an eternity separated from him forever. So how do we avoid the threat of empty intellectualism? Let's read Matthew 7 together and find out. Would you stand with me as you're able? 
for the reading of God's word from Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 27. The words will be on the screen in front. If you don't have a Bible to follow along with, I hope you do. If you don't have a Bible, we would love to give you one of those at the info bar after the service. Hear the word of the Lord. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on that rock. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. It's sharper than a double-edged sword. It pierces through us straight down to our souls. Pray that You would use your word this morning to do that for someone. To pierce through them, to convict them of their utter sinfulness and their desperate need for a Savior. I pray that you would use your word this morning to wake someone up. Maybe someone who's been playing the church game for a long time. Someone who has deluded themselves into thinking that they're saved. Who has the appearance of godliness, but none of the power. Father, would you convict them this morning of their need for you? More importantly, would you show them Jesus, who stands ready with open arms to save them? you help them to hear through this challenging, terrifying warning the good news behind it that no, no one here this morning need hear those words, depart from me, I never knew you because we really can know you through Jesus. Would you help us to see him, to love him, to trust him as our Lord and Savior. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> Quick word about this passage's context. This is the final section of Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount. Jesus began in Matthew chapter 5 with the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, those who mourn, the meek, peacemakers, etc. And then Jesus called his followers to be salt and light in a dark and decaying world. He warned against antinomianism, anti-lawism, rejecting the law of God. Jesus said, no, I came to up the ante. He claimed, you've heard it said, 
don't murder. I say to you, don't even get angry with a brother. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. I say to you, don't even lust in your heart. You've heard it said, try to avoid divorce and taking an oath and retaliation. But I say to you, love everyone and be perfect. And then in chapter 6, Jesus instructs us how to give to those in need, how to pray, how to fast, how not to hoard our money or ever be worried. And then here in chapter 7, he has warned us now about judging others, about treating others the way we want to be treated, about bewaring of the, the path that is easy and leads to destruction, bewaring of false prophets whose religion is all show and no substance. And that brings us to his most urgent of all his warnings here in verses 21 through 27 and our desperate need to be known by Jesus. So how do we make sure that we know him and we are known by him and avoid the threat of mere intellectualism, merely knowing about him? He's got a fourfold plan of action for you this morning. Four things. Number one, do God's will. Do God's will will. Verse 21, Jesus states plainly here, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who, what, does the will of my Father who is in heaven. He says similarly in Luke 6, 46, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Talk is cheap, And usually you get what you pay for in life. If you were sold a faith that cost you a trip down the aisle in a church service long ago, and just praying that simple sinner's prayer, and you were told that that one simple act guaranteed you a spot in heaven for all eternity, it is possible that you really are saved today. But it is also entirely possible that you are one of these folks who recognize exactly who Jesus is, that he really is Lord. He's kurios. He's God in the flesh. And you confess him as such with your lips, but your heart is far from him and you don't really know him at all. Because confessing with your lips is only half the ticket. Romans 10.9 promises that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. See, intellectualism gets half the equation right. It's very important to know about Jesus, to know who he is, so you really can confess him as Lord. That is an absolute prerequisite. You cannot get to heaven without it. And yet, it is by far the easier half of the picture of salvation. Anyone can confess the name of Jesus. Friends, even the demons know all the right things about Jesus, James says, and they shudder. The more important, the much more difficult part is giving him your heart, believing, truly believing in your heart that God has raised him from the dead because that will absolutely, necessarily turn your life upside down. If it is true that Jesus is who he says he is, and he did what he said he did for you, and if you really believe it, you cannot, you will not go on with life as usual. It will change you. It will begin to and continue to, over the course of the entire rest of your life, change you from the inside out. Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, the hands act, the feet obey. It goes back to the fruit 
that he talked about in the verses just prior to this, verses 15 through 20 of Matthew 7. Jesus said, every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. It's that simple. It's that simple. This is why Jesus can say here that only those who do the will of the Father will get into heaven. It's about your fruit. Now, some of you are thinking, wait a minute, that sounds like works-based righteousness. Is Jesus saying that, that faith isn't enough, that it's faith plus works equals, righteous, equals salvation? No. Ephesians 2.8 is very clear that it is by grace alone, through faith alone, that we are saved. And this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. So salvation always comes through faith alone. But listen, it never comes through faith that is alone. Did you hear me? It's an important distinction. It's not just semantics. We are saved by faith alone, but not by faith that is alone. If you think you've got faith, but that faith is not necessarily producing good fruit, good works, the good works for which you were created, verse 10 of Ephesians 2, then you might think you are a fig tree, but you're deceiving yourself and your actions actually prove that you're a thorn bush. Because the roots will determine the fruits. Some of you think, wait, so you're, you're saying, I've got to do the will of the Father. You're saying, I'm supposed to Always be humble and meek and mournful and merciful and pure and poor and generous, a peacemaker, persecuted, salt and light, exceed the Pharisees in righteousness, never get angry or worried or vengeful or lustful or judgmental or forget to pray or fast or treat others the way I want to be treated, even my enemies. I've got to be perfect the way my heavenly Father is perfect. That's it. That's the will of the Father from the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus is talking about, that he expects me to do all of that. I guess I'll never get to heaven. I want you to be encouraged this morning, friends. I don't think that that is what Jesus has in mind here when he demands that we do the will of the Father. Do you know what the purpose of the Sermon on the Mount was? Paul tells us in Romans 7 that the purpose of the Old Testament law was to be a mirror to convict us of our brokenness and our utter inability to please God and earn heaven by our own merit and to convince us of our desperate need for a Savior. And Jesus finds himself here preaching to a bunch of folks who in spite of that have devoted their entire lives to trying to obey every jot and tittle of the law so much so that they have completely forgotten about the God behind it. And so Jesus says, look, you guys missed the memo. Like, you are not good enough to make it into heaven on your own merit. Unless you're perfect, you do not make the cut. That's the law. And so what does Jesus have in mind here then? When he says you must do the will of the Father in order to enter heaven. What does he mean? In John chapter 6, it's a really, really important interaction where there's a crowd following Jesus who ask him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Do you remember how Jesus responded? He said, this is the work of God, that you 
believe in him whom he has sent. Friends, if you want to do God's will, believe in his son Jesus this morning. Listen, kids, kids, do you want to do God's will and be saved? Kids, do you want to go to heaven and not hell? Is Allie in here this morning? Do, do we still teach kids about hell and kids' ministry at West Hills? We better. Parents, do you, do you tell your kids about hell? You better. You say, well, we don't want to scare them into a relationship with God. The Bible says the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. It's better to scare them toward God than to soothe them into hell. Your kids need to know about hell. Listen, kids, just in case your parents have been telling you the PG version, let me, let me give you the facts this morning. There really is a heaven, and there really is a hell. And everybody in here is going to go to one or the other one day. There are only two types of people in the world, and guess what? It's not good kids and bad kids. Listen, you're bad. You're all bad. Romans 3.10 no one is righteous, not your pastor, not your parents, not you. No one in here is good. It's not good people and bad people. We are all sinners who fall short of God's standard. The good news of Christianity is not that if you try your hardest to be a good little girl or boy, that maybe God will love you and accept you and let you into heaven. The good news of Christianity is so much better than that. The good news is that God so loved you that, that even while you were yet a sinner, when there was nothing lovable in you, Jesus looked down and said, I want Jules. I want Annalise. I want Sandy and Mike. I want you. I want you so bad, I'll go to the cross to purchase you with my own blood. That is the good news of Christianity. And kids and adults and those in person and those joining virtually, hear this, there are only two kinds of people in the world and both of them are sinners. But there are sinners who will get what they deserve one day and spend an eternity apart from God. And then there are sinners who have thrown themselves on God's mercy by trusting in the only name given under heaven and on earth by which we must be saved, the name of Jesus. If you want to go to heaven, you need to do God's will, Jesus says. What is God's will? It's believing in his son, Jesus. Not just confessing. Many will confess on that day but few will have truly repented and turned to him in faith. Don't just give him your head. Don't just give him your, your, your lip service. He's not interested. You need to give him your heart. Number two, if you would avoid the threat of empty intellectualism, you need to beware your works. Beware your works. Verse 22, Jesus says, on that day, Many will say to me, Lord, Lord. Now, before we even get to their works, let's talk about their words. We need to note that there are actually three dangers that this passage warns us of. I, I highlighted intellectualism because I think that at a church like West Hills, it's the danger that's most threatening to, to most of us. But there are really three dangers possible here and three types of fake Christians that we need to watch out for in the mirror. 
The first, as we've said, is the intellectual, the person who confuses orthodoxy with a relationship with Jesus. If I just believe the right things, God will accept me. And as Scripture says, the demons believe all the right things about Jesus, and if you don't repent and trust in him, you're going to share the same eternal destination as they do. But the second kind of pseudo-Christian here is the emotional. It's emotionalism. If intellectualism replaces a relationship with Jesus with believing the right things, then emotionalism replaces it with feeling things, with emotions, with passion. You look back at the many who Jesus is going to reject from verse 22. They cry out, Lord, Lord. Listen, it's, it's one thing to confess Jesus is Lord, but I think the repetition in the text here I think it's supposed to point us to the, the fact of the sincerity of their cries. I think they really mean it. I think these are people who had a genuine experience with the Lord at some point in their life. People who were moved to honest tears in their worship of Jesus at some point, you know, long ago at, at youth camp. And yet, who will hear him say to them, I never knew you. Because the gospel isn't that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever has all the feels, feels all the feels, that whoever lifts their hands and really means it during the worship service, whoever got choked up watching the Passion of the Christ as a teenager. No, the gospel is that whoever believes in Jesus shall not perish but have everlasting life. And some of you might feel like you truly love Jesus. Like, Jesus, Lord, Lord, it's me. Remember me? Please, I I love you. And he will say to you on that day, you love me? Greater love has no one than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. Let me ask you, when exactly did you lay down your life for me? See, I I laid my life down for you. I went to the cross for you. And I was very clear with you that in return, what I asked, what I demanded of you, was that if anyone would come after me, Luke 9, he must deny himself and take up his cross and daily and follow me, daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So let me ask you, with all of your passion and with all of your emotion, When did you ever surrender your life to me? When were you crucified with Christ, as Callie read for us, Galatians 2.20? When did you die to yourself to find new life in me, Romans 6.5, the picture of baptism? There's intellectualism, there's emotionalism, and then there's activism. This is the person who confuses her religious activity with a relationship with Jesus, who says, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? That's a pretty impressive spiritual resume, okay? Let's, let's just appreciate that for a minute. I haven't heard of anyone here at West Hills accurately predicting the future or exercising demons or performing any miracles lately. Any of y'all? I, I haven't. Please note, Jesus' response here to them isn't, you bunch of liars. 
I think we're supposed to assume that they actually did all this stuff, and yet they'll be cast into hell? How is that possible? Well, Balaam prophesied in God's name, Numbers chapter 23, and he went to hell. Judas cast out demons in Luke 10, 17, and he went to hell. And the Antichrist will one day perform great miracles by the power of Satan, according to 2 Thessalonians 2, 8, and 9, and he's going to hell. So I'll reiterate it again. There are two types of people in this world, and it's not people who can perform signs and wonders in Jesus' name and those who can't. It's those who believe in Jesus, who trust in Jesus, who've surrendered their lives to Jesus and those who haven't. See, the danger with works is that they really do accompany saving faith. James 2.17 says, by faith itself, Faith itself, if it does not have works, is dead. It's not really faith. So you put that together with Ephesians 2 that we read earlier, and we can conclude that grace plus faith leads to salvation plus works. See, works are important, Protestants. They're important because true saving faith in God's grace, his gift of Jesus, will necessarily produce eternal life and its fruit, good works. But here's the problem. You can also have works without grace or faith or salvation. If A plus B equals C, and you've got C, that doesn't necessarily mean that you've got A or B. My daughter Ellery plus too much screen time equals grumpiness. But if my daughter is grumpy, does that necessarily mean she's watched too much TV? No. We could have confiscated a toy. Maybe she didn't sleep long enough. Maybe she's hungry. There's any number of reasons she could be grumpy. Similarly, here in Matthew 7, there can be any number of causes for our good works. Our good works may come from a truly regenerated, pure, clean heart that delights to serve and obey our Lord, but they might also come from a desire to please people by performing. perform for mom and dad, get baptized. Our good deeds might come from a desire to feel better about ourselves and assuage our guilt for the bad deeds we've done by doing enough good to ostensibly make up for the bad. Our good works can even come from a desire for power or status. Good works can buy you a lot of social capital in the church world, help you climb the hierarchy. If you're looking for elders and deacons in a church, You've got to examine people's fruit, right? The problem is that there's good fruit that comes from good trees. And then there's fruit that appears to be good, and the difference in taste might be so slight that it's almost imperceptible, but in reality, it was grown somewhere in a Petri dish in some twisted lab, and we're probably going to find out in 20 years that it gives us all cancer because trees are supposed to produce fruit. Pharisees of Jesus' day managed to produce some pretty convincing petri dish fruit. They had most of the Old Testament memorized. You and I don't. They tithed faithfully. Some of y'all don't. Jesus even implies in Matthew 12, 27, that some of them can cast out demons. Anybody here ever exercised a demon? And yet Jesus said to them, 
this people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. We need to beware of our good works, friends. They can be deceptive. There will be many who will come before Jesus on that day and who will say, Lord, Lord, did I not volunteer in the church nursery every month? Lord, Lord, did I not go through confirmation and memorize the catechism? Lord, Lord, did I not attend a gospel-preaching church all my life? Wasn't I raised in a godly Christian family? Lord, Lord, did I not walk the aisle and pray the sinner's prayer and get baptized? And he will say to you, depart from me, I never knew you. Intellectualism says, here's my head. Emotionalism says, here's my heart. Activism says, here's my hands. Jesus says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. I am not truly your Lord if you don't surrender it all to me. See, O-Town plagiarized Jesus when they sang, I want it all or nothing at all. That's Jesus circa first century. Friends, don't let your orthodoxy, your passion, or your religious activity deceive you into thinking that you are saved if you are not. Number three, to avoid deception, we need to be wed to Christ. We need to be wed to Jesus. Now we finally arrive at it, the most terrifying verse in the whole Bible. Matthew 7, 23, then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And I've said it already, the key here is to understand that it's not enough to know about Jesus. We have to know Jesus, and he has to know you. You know who knows me? None of y'all know me. None of you really know me. You know who knows me? My wife. She knows me. She's the only person on the world that really knows me. See, my exhortation here to be wed to Christ is more than just a nice alliteration. Kids, an alliteration is a repetition of the same letter if you had not yet noticed that pattern in your bulletins. Works and will and wed. But here's the point. You really get to know someone by being married to them, don't you? Those of you who are married. Polly and I are leading the Young and Married workshop here this coming Friday. And I suspect that we're going to have a whole lot of newlyweds sitting right down here saying the same thing. You know, I thought I knew her. And then we got married. Right? Some of you will be saying it in one tone. I thought I knew her. And then we got, and, and it's just, I, I'm like falling in even deeper in love with her. And then some will use another tone. I thought I knew him. Help! But here's the reason. There's a reason that one of the primary metaphors for the church in the New Testament is the bride of Christ. Christians, we are the bride of Christ. Why? Because Jesus knows his own intimately. And we know him. We know him. I like to use that analogy when I'm counseling people for baptism. I had the honor of 
baptizing Josh at 9 o'clock in Calais this morning. I sometimes say that baptism is like your wedding day, to publicly declare and celebrate your commitment to Christ. Baptism doesn't make you saved any more than a wedding makes you married. On the one hand, you're supposed to already be saved when you get baptized. Your baptism is just a public, symbolic celebration. I had already committed to sharing my life with Polly seven months prior to our wedding when I proposed. And technically, it was even legal when we signed the marriage license before the ceremony started. So the wedding was really just a formality in some sense. On the other hand, there are plenty of people who have had weddings who don't have a marriage. And not really, not, not in any meaningful sense of the term. They're just roommates. They tolerate each other for the kids' sake. But they're not really married. Similarly, I fear that in a congregation of this size this morning, statistically speaking, it is almost certain that some of you have been baptized, but you do not have a relationship with Jesus. This happens with a lot of kids raised in the church, right? Both Callie and Josh, their testimonies this morning, were baptized as kids. I was baptized at the age of eight. And in our testimonies, though, we'll clarify, you know, I made a public uh, profession of faith. I confessed Lord, Lord with my lips when I was 12 or 8. Or, but then I went through some stuff in middle or high school or college, and I strayed from the faith. And it really wasn't until after, later in life, that I really realized what it meant to actually make Jesus the Lord and Savior of my life and truly surrender to him. So the reality is, we had a wedding, but not a marriage for maybe decades of our life. This is why, if I'm honest, I'm usually pretty reluctant to baptize kids. Listen, getting married is only the second biggest decision that many of us will ever make in our lives because it will affect the last 50, 60, 70 years of your life. It's important, majorly important. Trusting in Jesus is for eternity. Some of you kids sitting here, I hope, I pray that you will go home and you will talk with your parents about what we've been discussing this morning. And I pray that you will decide to trust in Jesus as your Lord and your Savior. I do. But I'm just going to warn you right now, when you come and you talk to me about standing up there and being baptized, I am going to make absolutely sure, as far as it is up to me, that you know exactly what you're signing on for, that this is for life. God hates divorce. If, if you're committing to him, it's for life. He's not interested. I'm, I'm not interested in being the guy in your testimony who baptized you when I shouldn't have because you, you weren't really saved yet. If you're not ready for marriage yet, if you're not ready to commit to a wife for the rest of your life, it's possible you're not mature enough yet to commit for all eternity to Jesus. That's the biggest decision you'll ever make. Don't make it lightly, kids. Don't make it lightly, adults. And yet, listen, when you do, have a marriage. 
be wed to Jesus. Be intimate with Jesus. Give him your whole heart and mind and soul and strength. Don't ever look back. He is worth it. Don't delay to make the decision. Like if you are feeling the Holy Spirit's tug this morning, today can be the day of your salvation. Yes, get married. Give your life to him. Do it. Don't delay. But do it for real. Do it for life. Don't look back. Jeremiah 29, 13, God says, you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. God doesn't want to just peacefully coexist with you. He's not interested in being your roommate. He wants to be passionately pursued by you. He wants to have a, a deep, intimate relationship with you. Let me ask you, Christian, is reading the Bible a chore for you? Is spending time with the Lord in prayer and in his word is that something to get checked off your to-do list? These are warning signs of a wedding without a marriage. I'll tell you, the time at the end of the night when Polly and I get the kids tucked into bed, and it's just the two of us, and we get the opportunity to connect on a deep, personal level about what's going on in our lives, what's going on in our hearts, to be intimate emotionally, spiritually, maybe even physically, that's not a chore for me. No one's got to make me spend time with her in that way because I love her. I love her and I want a marriage with her. And marriage means intimacy. It means closeness. It means being wed to Jesus. Lastly, and in conclusion, number four, if we are going to avoid the threat of knowing about Jesus without knowing Jesus, we need to act on Jesus' words. Act on his words. Verses 24 through 27. Jesus concludes with this. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. And so I ask you this morning, friends, what will you do with Jesus' words this morning? His call is very clear. What must I do to be doing the works of God? This is the work of God, to believe in Jesus. Will you do it? Will you trust him? Will you trust him with your life? Will you surrender your whole life, build your whole life on him? I pray you will. That's my prayer for you. Because all other ground is sinking sand. Let's pray.